On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. If you'll follow along now as I begin reading, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, you'll remember that the first three chapters of Ephesians are, are doctrinal, and in those chapters, Paul emphasized who we are in Christ, our position in Christ in the heavenly places, all because of his sovereign grace, and, and the main idea in those chapters is that God's wisdom, glory, and power are displayed in his eternal purpose for the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, reconciled to Christ. And after those three chapters of some of the uh, richest theology in all of Scripture, we transition from Paul's main doctrinal teaching to the practical instruction in Ephesians. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul focuses on Christian behavior. He tells us how we are to live out the Christian life. And he began in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, with this introductory statement on the Christian life, which he describes as a walk. And if you look back at verses, or chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 for just a moment, he says, Therefore, or in light of all of the glorious doctrinal truths in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You'll remember the word walk simply refers to how you and I live our lives. It speaks of our conduct, our behavior, our day-to-day living, our habitual way of life. And since we have been called by God into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul implores us to live in a manner that is consistent with our dignified position as a member of the body of Christ. And essential to walking worthy of our calling is a life characterized by humility and gentleness, patience, 
and bearing with one another in love. These are qualities that should mark the life of every single believer. And you'll remember that verses 1 and 2 set the stage for all the exhortations that follow, beginning in chapter 4, verse 3, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20, as Paul really fleshes out for us what is involved in, in walking worthy of our calling. First of all, in verses 3 to 16 of chapter 4, you'll remember Paul dealt with walking worthy of our calling within the church. In those verses, Paul emphasized the church's unity in the Spirit, its diversity in spiritual gifts. He talked about attaining doctrinal unity and growing to maturity and Christ-likeness all within this unity of the church. And that is the goal, unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. And Paul summed it all up in verses 15 to 16 when he said, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's a mature church. The mature church is where every single believer is doing their part and being built up so that the uh, body of Christ looks a little more like the Lord Jesus Christ and manifests his love to the world. That's what walking in a manner worthy of our calling looks like in the church. And So I guess the question this morning is, after going through that, you've thought about it and meditate on it, does that describe your walk, your life with regard to the church? You know, are we all here doing our part uh, seeking unity uh, and maturity and Christ-likeness, working together, everyone doing their part so that the body builds itself up in love. And then after showing us how we as believers are to live out the Christian life in the church, beginning in chapter 17 of verse 4, all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul turns now to talk about how we are to walk worthy of our calling in our personal lives. Not only in our relation to fellow believers, but more specifically to the world around us. And he insists that our calling demands a holy life, which of course we have the power to live through our union with Jesus Christ. And this is an extremely important point. Because of what God has done in our lives, he's transformed us by the power of the gospel, we are to live as God wants and requires us to live. And how does God want us to live? Well, he wants us to live as his people who strive to live holy lives. Paul says in verse 24, uh, there in chapter 4, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so the point is simply that we're not only to walk in unity, as we learn in verses 3 to 16, but in our personal lives, we are also to walk in holiness. We're to live holy lives. But what does it mean to be holy? I think there's a lot of confusion that surrounds that. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the word holy has uh, two shades of meaning. 
Holiness has the root idea in the Old Testament uh, of purity, you know, being separated from what is defective and sinful and evil, and, and secondly, of being different, of being set apart for God. God's holiness speaks of his purity, his moral perfection, that he is totally separate from all sin and, that all, and, that, uh, and all that is evil and defective and impure because God is light and in him is no darkness at all, John said in 1 John 1.5. That's the first half of the definition of holiness. Uh, you know, God is, is absolutely untainted by any evil, error, or wrongdoing, unlike angels, some of whom sin, or humans, all of whom have sinned. I mean, God is unlike any other. He is morally perfect. His character is absolutely without flaw or blemish of any kind. The second half of the definition of being set apart speaks of God's otherness. God's separateness. That God is utterly unique and in a class all by himself. That's his, that's, that is God's set-apartness. He is utterly set apart in a class by himself as the one who stands apart from and above all creation. He is high above any other. No one can compare to him. He is different than, than anything and everything in the entire created order. And God's holiness pervades his entire being and shapes all of his attributes. His love is a holy love. His mercy is holy mercy. Even his anger and wrath are holy anger and holy wrath. And of course, these concepts are difficult for us as humans to to even grasp. Just as God is difficult for us to understand in his entirety. So that's God's holiness. But what does it mean for us to be holy? Well, when God told Israel to be holy in Leviticus 11 and 19, he was instructing them to be distinct from the other nations by giving them specific regulations to govern their lives. I mean, Israel is is God's chosen nation, and God has set them apart from, from all other people groups for the worship and service of God. They're his special people. And consequently, they were given standards that God wanted them to live by so that the world would know that they belonged to him. In the New Testament, it describes what happens to holiness, describes what happens to all of us who come to faith in Christ. And it's first of all something that God does to us. At conversion, we are set apart by God, becoming His property and His holy people. I mean, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.10, Once you were not a people, but now you are. You are God's people. 1 Peter 2.9 describes believers as a holy nation. And that is a fact. We, we have been separated by God from the world. We are holy or we are saints. It's the same Greek word. We, we are set apart by God as His property, His people, to worship and serve Him. He is to be the primary focus of our lives. We are to live a life solely devoted to Him. And so this is the believer's position in Christ. We've been set apart by God as his property for him to love, worship, and serve him. But there's a practical side to our holiness, something that we participate in. Positionally, we're set apart unto God as holy, but now, as his people, 
Like Israel of old, we are to live out that reality in our day-to-day lives by living according to God's standards. Not your standard, not my standard, not anybody else's standard. We are to live according to God's standards, and certainly not the world's. God isn't calling us to be perfect, but rather to be distinct. We are to be distinct from the world. I mean, after all, we have a relationship with the living God. And Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, one commentator said, Believers are called to holiness. God's will has always been that His children reflect His character. The goal of Christianity is not only heaven when we die, but Christ's likeness now. And therefore, we are daily to seek to live a a set-apart life, a a holy life. In other words, we're not supposed to just blend in with the world. Rather, we are to live according to God's Word uh, so that the world will know that we actually belong to Him. So that the world will will know who we love and, and who we serve. And of course, this only makes sense. Because as Christians, we are entirely new men and women. A Christian is not just a man who has decided to clean up his act, you know, to be a a little bit more moral than he was, or who has decided to join a church, or who has decided this or that, whatever it may be. What makes a man a Christian is that he has been born again, he's been given a new nature. He's a new creation. He's different from what he was. He has been set apart unto God. And that being the case, the Christian is going to live differently than he did as an unbeliever. Because he's been separated once and and forever from all that he was before. And so the goal is to bring our practice up to our position to live out where we are in Christ. And if we are truly Christ's, we will have a new nature. And along with that new nature, we will have a new set of loyalties, a new agenda, new loves, and new desires because we belong to a different kingdom. And although being holy doesn't mean we we will always live holy lives, all believers will nevertheless be better than they would otherwise have been and will continue to grow and develop and, and display the very character of Christ. Because if there is genuine spiritual life, there's going to be spiritual growth. And of course, this is a lifelong process which we refer to as progressive sanctification. So because of what God has done in our lives through the gospel, we are to live as God wants and requires us to live. I mean, we are accountable to Him. Not only as our Creator, but also as our Redeemer and Lord and Master. We're called to live out our new identity in Christ with a lifestyle that is different from the world and different from our pre-Christian past. And I would say to you this morning, if your life today is really no different than your life in the past, except for the fact that you attend church once in a while, why in the world would you ever think that you were a Christian? Why? Because a Christian's life will be distinctly different from his pre-Christian past. 
So this morning, we're, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 19. That's, that's as far as we're going to get. Where Paul begins first by exhorting us how we should not live. He exhorts us in verses 17 to 19 how we should not live. I mean, look now at verse 17 where Paul introduces his teaching with a reminder of the extreme importance of what he's about to say. Notice the first nine words. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Paul isn't merely content uh, with, with saying, This I say, therefore. I mean, that would be strong, but not as strong as Paul wants it to be. And so he adds to it, This I say and testify in the Lord. And by adding and testify in the Lord, Paul is doubly impressing on his readers the seriousness of what he is about to say to them. Well, what does it mean by what, what does he mean by this word testify? Well, it's a very strong word, and it's a word that means to bear witness, to solemnly assert something, offering firsthand authentication of the fact, often concerning grave or important matters. And so it's almost as if Paul is, is calling a witness to the stand. And what does a man do when he goes into the witness box? Well, he, he testifies. He, he gives testimony to what he has seen or heard. And that, that's what Paul is saying. He doesn't want the Ephesians to think for one moment that he is merely stating his own personal opinion. Because there were people then, as there are now, who were all too ready to say, well, that's only Paul's opinion. Now, that's what Paul thinks. But Paul is letting them know that uh, that's not the case. This is not his personal opinion. This is not just something that, 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 that he, because he happens to have a narrow mind, was saying or thinking. He was not saying this because he was formerly a Pharisee and trained in the law. Not at all. This is not purely, merely Paul speaking on his own initiative. That is why he states, Now I say and testify in the Lord. He wants his readers and us to know that he's not stating his personal conviction regarding the standard for their Christian life, but rather what he is doing is giving testimony to what he has received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that it is the living Christ speaking through him. And therefore, what he is about to say as an apostle with divine authority is the very instruction of the Lord Jesus himself. Paul isn't giving some helpful hints that you may want to try whenever you feel like it. He is giving the Lord's commandments for his, how his people must live. I mean, Paul's command is in reality Christ's command. And so having made them realize that they are listening to the word of the living God, what is it that Paul has to say that is so uh, vitally important? Well, look back at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And so we all notice here that Paul begins with uh, something negative. You know, by telling his readers uh, something they're not to do. So he begins with the negative. And there are people today who do not like negatives. They want things that are, that are always positive. They don't like the criticisms of things that are wrong. You know, no, we, we must always uh, be positive, uh, etc. 
And unfortunately, there are people in the church that say Christianity should never be negative, only positive, that that we should only be known by what we're for rather than by what we are against. And while that may have a a tinge of spirituality, but not really, uh, that's impossible to do and to remain biblically faithful. Because Christianity always involves both a no and a yes. There is sin and error to be called out and rejected, and there is godliness and holiness to be embraced. And so, here we're told, first of all, what we must not do. And what is that? Well, look back at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. And again, the word walk simply refers to our, how we live our lives, our conduct, our our, our, our day-to-day behavior, our habitual way of life. And in addition, it, it, it speaks of the whole of man's life, inward and outward. We must, we must remember that our walk is not merely confined to the outward. It also involves the inward. God is concerned with, with the heart. He's concerned not only with the outward, but with the inward. And so Paul says, you must no longer walk. And the word translated no longer means not anymore. Or not for any more time. In other words, you once lived a certain way. But not anymore. You must no longer live that way. Why? Well, because of the tremendous change that has taken place within them. And so in a sense, the word no longer uh, contains the whole of the gospel. Because it tells us this, there is the past life. What they once were, what we once were. You know, they like us were unregenerate, unsaved. But not anymore, because something had happened. Now, now, there, now there's a future, and it's going to be completely different. I mean, this tells us what a radical, a profound change, regeneration, or the new birth produces. I mean, it, the, the Christian really is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You cannot be born again and not change. I mean, they once were blind, but now they see. You know, thank God for the transforming power the gospel give, that the gospel gives. You know, it gives us a new beginning, a, a new start. It gives us a new life in Christ. So what is it then that we must no longer do? Well, look back at the verse. Paul says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And how is that? Well, first of all, he says, in the futility of their minds. In the futility of their minds. Remember, he's speaking to Gentiles. The word Gentiles can be used in an ethnic sense for all non-Jewish peoples, but it can also be used in a moral sense Uh, really as a synonym for unbelievers, which is how Paul is using it here. I mean, the church in Ephesus had both Jews and Gentiles. However, it was comprised primarily of Gentiles. But by God's grace in Christ, they had been saved and 
reconciled to God through the gospel. The the deepest truth about them now was not that they were Gentiles, but they were a a dwelling place for God and the Spirit, united to Christ, members of His body, the church. And Paul commands these Gentile Christians who were still living in a Gentile environment, surrounded by a Gentile population, not to live like the Gentile non-Christians. He's saying, No longer live that way. They were to stop living the way they used to live as unconverted Gentiles. They were to completely abandon that lifestyle and now live in a way that glorified God. They had become different people. Again, new creations in Christ, so therefore they must behave differently. They could not continue in a lifestyle characteristic of their past as if none of the things mentioned in chapters 1 through 3 ever happened. I mean, their lives should not be conformed to the standards of the pagan world around them, but rather characterized by the new life that they had received from Christ. They had been called to discipleship and holiness by Christ, and, and they were to live as He lived. They were to be in the world, but not of the world. You see, Paul is showing us that that when you become a Christian, there must be a distinct break from the past. How we live now as Christians is to be governed by our relationship with Christ Jesus and the new identity we have in Him. Which means we're to live in a way that is sharply different from the world around us, and also from the lifestyle that characterized our pre-Christian past. Again, people should, should be able to see clearly the distinct difference in our lives so that they look at us and wonder, what happened? You know, what happened to her? Or man, what happened to him? They're different. But you know, there was, there was always a tendency for people to think that somehow they can profess faith in Christ and then live the way they did before Christ. But you cannot. You cannot. Because being a Christian means leaving the old life behind. It means living a new life. You know, we leave darkness for light, hatred for love, selfishness for servanthood, worldliness for holiness, and sin for obedience to God's word and to God's will. You see, according to the Bible, there are two kinds of people coexisting in the world, two ways of living, and two destinations to which they are headed. Jesus spoke of these two ways. He said, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount uh, and where those verses came from, you know that he is speaking in the context of those who profess to believe in Christ. So today we, we would take that as He's speaking to the church. So he's saying that in the church there are many who think they're on the narrow way, but they're really on the broad way that leads to destruction. 
But the point is, there's two ways. And you see, you either belong to Jesus Christ and to the Heavenly Father, or you belong to the world and to the devil. You are destined either for heaven or for hell. And there there are no alternatives. If you belong to Christ and are headed to heaven, then you must be on the narrow path, which is the path of holiness. Isaiah said in Isaiah 35, 8, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over. So if you're not seeking to be more godly and Christ-like, if you're unwilling to turn from your sins and, and your former lifestyle, then you should wonder if you belong to Jesus Christ and are going to heaven. There are only two ways. And if you're on the way of Christ, Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, your life now should be characterized by the new life that you've received from Christ. And so Paul appeals to them to live up to their new identity in Christ, which of necessity involves rejecting and abandoning the lifestyle that dominated their culture and that once dominated them. They were to walk in a manner worthy of their calling to which they had been called and to devote their lives to their Savior, as are we. And now in the final statement of verse 17 through verse 19, Paul describes the way in which his readers once walked as Gentiles, the way in which their peers still walked, and the way in which the Ephesian saints must no longer walk. And these verses are are really very similar to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, where Paul describes the consequences of the pagan world denying God. There in Romans 1, Paul said they suppress the truth of God because of sin, and so therefore... Uh, They live in sexual immorality, homosexuality, idolatry, and all kinds of wickedness. I mean, this was true of, of Ephesus. They rebelled against God, and the consequence was a lifestyle of depravity and debauchery. We read now in verse 17, Paul says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, or as unbelievers do. And so how do they walk? How do Gentiles, the unbelievers, walk? Paul says they walk in the futility of their mind and the futility of their minds. The word futile means empty, vain, useless, worthless, foolish, pointless. Futility is sometimes translated as meaningless or vanity, and it's used extensively in Ecclesiastes to describe life apart from the fear of God. Similarly, Paul in Romans 1 writes of those who knew God but did not honor or give thanks to God, and so he says they became futile in their thinking. So Paul says the life of unbelieving Gentiles or the life of unbelievers is characterized as a walk which is in the futility of their mind. And the word mind means intellect, understanding, thought, you know, conception. Now, don't mistake futility for stupidity. That's not what he's saying. I mean, Paul would not call Plato, Aristotle, or Socrates stupid. These men were Gentiles who had brilliant intellects. 
But you see, even though the mind of the unconverted man may be filled with, with many things and may be highly developed intellectually speaking, it is completely unable to apprehend spiritual truth, genuine spiritual truth. When it comes to God and the things of God, no matter how brilliant their intellects, the, the unsaved man is futile in his mind and thinking. And Paul is saying his thinking is useless, vain, foolish. It's, it's destitute of, of real wisdom, which begins with the fear of God. I mean, it's true that man still reasons and thinks, but he doesn't come up with the truth, with ultimate truth. He, he is more ready to embrace evil than he is to embrace God's self-revelation. His mind is, is plagued with empty, foolish thoughts about what he thinks God is like that are utterly false and just foolish. And we should expect that. We should expect that from unbelievers. Because as Paul said to the Corinthian believers, the natural person or the unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he says, he, the unbeliever, is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned, and the unbeliever does not have any spiritual capacity to discern spiritual things or spiritual truth. You know, one of the slogans we so often hear today uh, is this. You are what you eat. Have any of you heard that? You hear it all the time, right? But the much deeper truth is that we are what we think. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, their first thought was what? To run and hide from God. And why was that? Because sin had so corrupted and, and mangled their minds that it caused them to think that the, the good and gracious God was someone to hide from. What happened? Their thinking became futile. You see, the problem with the world is wrong thinking. Wrong thinking about God, which ultimately affects everything else. I mean, what we think about God, His existence, His character, His will, His relationship to us, it absolutely shapes everything else we believe and do. What we think about God determines how we behave and how we live. What we think about God uh, really determines the course of our lives. That's why what a man thinks about God is so vitally, vitally important. Because believers' thinking has been transformed, they understand that, that he or she has been chosen for salvation for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to God. Consequently, all that is done then is to be done for his glory. Whereas the unbeliever in the futility of his mind and thinking sees all of life revolving around his own personal interest. And so self-interest is always the focus, and, and servanthood is viewed with contempt. Furthermore, the, the thinking of the believer is based upon the revelation of the truth in Scriptures, while the thinking of the unbeliever is based upon their own subjective perception of truth and reality. And we know how skewed that can be.
And what is the end of that? Nothing. No saving knowledge of God, no understanding of life, no knowledge of how to live, no understanding of death, no hope for them beyond death and the grave. I mean, life without Christ is always futile. It is always empty, always vain. It takes from you and it leaves you at the end exhausted with nothing to lean on, nothing to be proud of, nothing whatsoever to look forward to except the fearful expectation of judgment. And so it's no wonder then that the mind set on the flesh is vastly different from the mind that is set on the spirit. And so Paul is saying to the Gentile believers who have been born again, you know, the gospel has opened your eyes to the futility and and the vanity of this world and, and its mind, its thinking, its life, and its outlook. Therefore, you're no longer to walk as the unsaved do in the futility of your mind. You're no longer to walk that way. That's not who you are. I mean, and thank God that, that in His infinite mercy and grace, He has caused His Spirit to shine the light of the glory of the Gospel into our hearts and give us life and give us understanding. I mean, what a blessing that is. And now Paul goes on to describe the terrible condition of Gentiles apart from Christ. He says in verse 18, notice, he says they are darkened in their understanding. Darkened in their understanding. The word darkened means to become unable to perceive and thus unable to understand or to be incapable of perceiving, not, not, not to be able to understand. And the type of word this is in the Greek indicates that this is a continuing condition of spiritual darkness. And this idea is similar to that of, of living in the futility of their mind, but it goes further in explaining why they live that way. Their understanding is darkened. And this description of the Gentile spiritual darkness is similar to Paul's Paul's words in Romans 1.21 where he said, their foolish hearts were darkened. I mean, being darkened is, is something that took place in the past. Well, when did it happen? When man sinned in the garden. When Adam fell, it plunged the entire human race uh, not only into spiritual death, but spiritual darkness. And the light of man's understanding went out. His perception, his ability to reason spiritually was darkened so that all men are now in a state of being incapable of grasping the truth of God and His gospel. And this spiritual darkness was not a temporary condition. This is the continuing state of all men apart from Christ. They are spiritually darkened and blind to spiritual truth. And this darkening, this this spiritual blindness is far, far worse than physical blindness. Because the man who is physically blind knows it and admits it. But the person who is spiritually and morally darkened is blind even to the fact that he's blind. And not only are unbelievers darkened in their understanding and spiritually blind, they love it. They love to have it that way. You say, oh, I don't believe it. Well, Jesus said in John three nineteen to 20 and this is the judgment 
The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So you see, the biblical picture is not that sinners are crying out, oh, if I could only see. No. No, they love the darkness. And they do not want the light to expose their sin. And sin darkens our understanding in every way. So that God is a mystery to the unsaved. He is someone to hide from. I mean, uh, uh, those with darkened minds cannot understand God and gospel truth. They cannot even understand themselves. They don't know that God has put an eternity into their hearts and that nothing under the sun can satisfy their relentless quest for life and for satisfaction and fulfillment. And not only are unbelievers darkened in their understanding and spiritually blind, Paul tells us they are also, if you look back at the verse, alienated from the life of God. Sinful man is alienated not merely from the knowledge of God, but from the very life of God. That, that eternal spiritual life that God alone possesses in Himself and bestows upon His children. Those who do not belong to Christ are dead, spiritually dead in trespasses and sin and have no relationship at all with the living God. Unbelievers know nothing of the spiritual life and fellowship with God, and that is why they are infatuated by things like wealth and fame and sinful pleasures and entertainment. And so no matter how vital, healthy, active, happy, productive, and inventive people may be, if they do not know Jesus Christ personally, they are severed from the only life that is truly and eternally life. You see, loved ones, human nature is totally uh, corrupted and polluted by sin, and until we are born again by God's Spirit, we are spiritually dead and darkened in our whole inner life. And so this means that if you have a children or a child or a neighbor or a co-worker who's living a sinful life. Perhaps they're living immorally. You must realize that the problem is their darkened minds and their alienation from God. And so the first priority then must never be to just try to reform their outward lives because that doesn't, that doesn't touch the root of the problem. The priority is to lead them to the saving knowledge of God through His Word. And this is why preaching should teach us about God and Christ, what, what they're like, what God and Christ has done and what He expects and, and what He promises to those who trust in Him. And when they come to know this, when they come to know Christ and are born again, as Peter says, through the living and abiding Word of God, they will no longer be futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, or alienated from the life of God. They will belong to Christ. They will have new life in Him. As we continue through verse 18, Paul now tells us why the unbelieving are alienated from the life of God. He says, notice, 
It is because of the ignorance that is in them. And the word ignorant in the Greek means without knowledge. And it comes from the Greek word from which we get the English word agnostic. You know, the world is alienated from God because, Paul says, they are, they are ignorant of him. But I want you to notice something. This ignorance is not merely something that is true about them so that it can be solved simply by providing them with some information. No, the ignorance, Paul says, is in them. It's in them. It is characteristic of man's sinful nature. Paul says the unbelieving are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But you see, according to the Bible, there there's really is no one who ought to be ignorant of God. Because he has revealed himself to all men through creation. Paul said in Romans 1, 19-20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made So, Paul says, they are without excuse. No one has an excuse. And then according to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, God also reveals himself to man through the conscience. You see, he has written his law upon the hearts of all men. God has given man an innate knowledge of him and and of right and of wrong. And so God has revealed himself to all men through creation and the conscience, but man has chosen to reject and suppress that truth. So Paul says in Romans 1, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Though they knew God, though they knew that there was a God and that he should be worshipped and thanked, they suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. So this ignorance of God is not because of lack of education or opportunity. It is the willful choice of men and women. They do not want to know God because they do not want to be accountable to God. They do not want to obey Him. And so they willfully reject His revelation. And this, Paul says, back in verse 18, is due to their hardness of heart. It's because of the hardness of the heart. The Greek word for hardening is a word that originally meant a stone harder than marble. And in our own terms, we might call this a a heart of stone. And this word hardness is often used in the New Testament to describe the condition of the unbelieving heart. It was used uh, to refer to the hearts of those in the synagogue who decided to kill Jesus as they witnessed his healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And this hardness of heart keeps one from seeing things as they really are. And this was true of Pharaoh, wasn't it? He could not see the, the finger of God in the plagues of the Exodus, even when his own servants or his magicians pointed it out to him in Exodus 8, 19. And here in our text, hardness of heart describes a rigid, unyielding, stubborn, willful resistance to the truth of the gospel because of their rebellion against God. And as a result, their hearts become hard and more hard and they are darkened and they are lost. And you see, loved ones, this is why it is utterly 
futile. This is why it is uh, beyond foolish to try to reach unbelievers through entertainment or by human reasoning or persuasion. You're never going to entertain anyone into the kingdom of God. Unbelievers are blind in their ignorance and they are in rebellion against God. And so that is why we must pe- preach Christ. Christ, the light that shines in the darkness. We must proclaim the gospel because Paul said the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Nothing else can save. Absolutely nothing else can save. God alone can save the unbelieving sinner, and he does throw through does so through the power of the gospel. This is how we were saved. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is knowledge that God gives, that God shines into our hearts. And Paul tells us now in verse 19 that as a result of this hardness of heart, look, he says they have become callous. And the word translated here as callous means to cease to feel pain. You know, stop feeling pain or become dead to feeling. You know, it's just like when you get calluses on your hands or your feet, you lose sensitivity and, and feeling in, in that spot where the callus is. Spiritually, this refers to a lack of moral sensitivity. You know, it speaks of an inability to feel shame, an inability to blush, a, a loss of emotional or spiritual capacity to feel embarrassed for one's conduct. And this is what so often happens. You know, the first time a person commits a sin, they think, well, I'm just going to do this once. But after they do it, their conscience bothers them. They, they feel guilty. Or they feel guilty. But the next time, that same sin's a little easier. And they rationalize it by thinking, well, you know, others do worse. It's no big deal. And each time... It becomes easier and easier to sin as their conscience develops a spiritual callous. And finally, they give themselves over to sin with abandon. They have no shame about it. Sins that were once hidden or excused are now indulged in openly and and blatantly. People reach this point after a period of rejecting God and His Word, and so now there's a hard, impenetrable shell, a a callus that makes them insensitive to God and to reality and to the consequences of their sinful thoughts and actions. And as a result of this spiritual callousness, Paul says now in verse 19, They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Those who are spiritually blind and morally callous lose any sensitivity to what is right or wrong. 
And so they just give themselves over to the pursuit of, of fleshly pleasures. Paul says they give themselves up to sensuality. And the word translated sensuality means lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. And it's probably, uh, one man wrote, best understood as undisciplined behavior, especially, though not exclusively, of a sexual nature. And if that's not bad enough, Paul says believers are also greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word impurity uh, includes unrestrained sexual behavior, but it can't be restricted to that only because the text mentions every kind of impurity. And so never satisfied, unbelievers are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And this expression, greedy to practice, it indicates just the insatiability of perverse sins. And the point is, as the New International Version puts it, that they sin with a continual lust for more. And that, of course, is because sin never satisfies. A continually hardened heart becomes more and more insensitive so that more and more sin is needed to gratify the flesh because what was once new and exciting and pleasurable soon becomes boring, you know, old hat and unfulfilling. And so man has to get more and more deviant and perverted in his sexual pursuits. And that's why we see what we have today in our culture. The sinner has to seek new depths of immorality and perversion which results in every kind of impurity and ultimately the very kind of homosexual perversions that are just rampant in our society today. I mean, giving themselves over to sensuality and impurity becomes just enslaving. I mean, people are enslaved to sin. They, they think it's freedom. No, it's, it's enslavement. They're enslaved to sin. They're under the dominion of sin and the dominion of Satan. They give themselves over to sensuality and impurity. They become uh, so enslaved that they care nothing about what other people think, not to mention about what God thinks, but only about what gratifies the cravings of their own warped mind and sinful flesh. And is this how you want to live? Is this how you have been living? One man wrote, if you're partaking of the sensuality of our society today, watching the filthy soap operas or reading the sensual magazines, men's or women's, or indulging in pornography or adulterous sex, realize where this is leading you. It is not leading to satisfaction, but rather to a calloused heart and a life of bondage. It is an empty life, beginning with a willful ignorance of the God who is there, with a heart that is hard to his word and a mind that is closed to his truth. And then he writes, Why will you live any longer in such a condition 
on such a path that leads to hell, both in this life and in eternity beyond, when God calls you to the grace and the mercy that He offers to you freely in Jesus Christ. Man left to himself, you know, left to ourselves, apart from God, we're all vile. And even though some are more vile than others, all are still in desperate need of Christ and the transforming power of the gospel. Paul's readers in the Ephesian church at one time, uh, their lives matched this dark description that he's given in verses 7 to 19. But in sharp contrast to the mindset and lifestyle of the unbelieving Gentiles all around them, Paul reminds them in verse 20, look very quickly. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. This is how the unbelieving Gentiles live. You're not the walk that way. I mean, you used to, but not anymore. That is not the way that you learn Christ. You know, it reminds me of uh, uh, that verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. I love that verse, or love this verse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he said. And such were some of us. But, Paul continues, but... That's the way you were. But, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's basically the same thing Paul's saying here. Don't live this way. It's the way you used to live. This is the way the Gentiles are, are all around you were living. But that's not the way you've learned Christ. That's not who you are anymore. Yeah, sin had alienated them from the life of God, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they received new life, eternal life. They became new creations in Christ with divine power from on high to live now a holy life. And that is why Paul could command them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but rather to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, apart from the regenerating work of Christ, the unsaved are futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, willfully resisting the truth because of their rebellion against God, and as a result, their hearts are hard. And in his commentary on Ephesians, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a, a perfect illustration of this. Let me share it with you. 
William Pitt the Younger was one of the great prime ministers of England. He had a great intellect, and he was the friend of William Wilberforce, the man who devoted his life to the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. And he said Wilberforce had experienced a a genuine conversion, and this made him the upright man that he was. And it was because of his Christian convictions that he labored so long and, and struggled so hard against slavery. Pitt, on the other hand, was a nominal Christian, as most Englishmen of that day were, but Christianity did not mean anything to him. In London in those days, there was also a great evangelical clergyman and preacher by the name of Richard Cecil. And Wilberforce attended and uh, Cecil's preaching regularly and was delighted with it. It fed his soul and, and warmed his heart. And he wanted his friend William Pitt, the prime minister, to go with him to hear Cecil. Wilberforce often invited Pitt to attend church with him, but Pitt made excuses. He was always too busy. However, a day came when Pitt told Wilberforce that he would accompany him. And that Sunday morning, uh, the preacher was at his best, and Wilberforce was uplifted as he had scarcely ever been before. He was glorying in God and, and praying for his friend. However, when the service ended and they were going out together, William Pitt turned to his friend, Wilberforce, and said, you know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. If you've ever witnessed to a non-Christian family member or friend, you must have had that same experience. You share the gospel, you know, just pour your heart out, and they look at you with that glazed over look. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or maybe I'll come back and talk to you another day. And no doubt you were saddened by that. That's understandable, but it shouldn't be surprising. Because this is the blindness and the hardness of the heart that Paul is speaking about. So if you know someone that professes to be a Christian, they're always saying, well, I don't understand this, I don't understand that, I don't understand the Bible, I just don't understand anything about this Christianity. Well, guess what? They probably don't belong to Christ. They're full of the blindness and the hardness of the heart that Paul speaks about here. And a person like this will remain in that blind, hardened state until God softens their heart and opens their eyes to the truth of the gospel. And that's the good news of this passage. That God can transform anyone by His grace and give them a new life in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? God can transform anyone by His grace and give them a new life in Christ. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And when He gives them a new life in Christ, as new creations in Christ, they're going to think differently. They'll they'll respond to the truth differently. They'll act differently. And they're going to live differently, though it may be slow at first. But they're going to live differently from the unbelieving culture in which we live. 
And then by the grace and strength which God supplies, they're going to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. You know, they're going to live, seek to live a holy life. You know, they're going to be in the world, but not of the world. Loved ones, because of what God has done in our lives through the gospel, providing God has actually done something in your life uh, through his gospel. But because of what God has done in our lives through the gospel, we're called to live out this new life in Christ with a, a lifestyle that is distinctly different from the world and distinctly different from our past before we came to Christ. And so let me ask you, is this the kind of life you're living? Is your life distinctly different from the life you used to live? And you know, if you were someone that uh, was born into a Christian family, grew up in church, you know, raised uh, in a moral uh, household and, and learned to talk the talk and had a Bible and went to Sunday school and and all of this, but you know, you have never really come to faith in Christ. Uh, you're one of those people that's very hard to reach. Because you weren't a blatant, you know, overt sinner. You weren't an adulterer or a robber or a thief or a drug addict or a drunkard. And so you grow up just thinking that you're a Christian. You believe because it's what your parents told you to believe. And that's why you believe it. It's just second-hand information, though. It's not a reality in your life. So the distinct difference in your life would be uh, internally, but it would also express itself outwardly. So are you living a life that is distinctly different from the world and distinctly different from the way you used to live? Or are you professing to be a Christian yet pretty much uh, continuing to live the way you've always lived? And again, if that's the way you're living, why do you think you're a Christian? Because to be born again, to be regenerated, is radical. It transforms. And if there's regeneration, there's spiritual life, it's going to be evident because there's going to be spiritual growth. There's going to be a desire for God, for the things of God, for the people of God, for the church. There's going to be a desire to love God, to know Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, and to glorify Him forever. And if those aren't your primary desires, have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? And so when you leave today, I, I want you to ask yourself, you know, and really examine your life. How are you living? How are you living? Does your life really manifest? someone who's been regenerated. I don't mean that you show up at church or you have a Bible. Those are things a Christian does, but those things don't make you a Christian any more than a man on the moon.
How are you living your life? And this is vitally important because it determines our destiny. You know, if you're unsure, or perhaps you realize at this moment that you've been living a lie, that your life isn't really any different other than you may show up at church and have a Bible. You may even study the Bible. But that's about the extent of it. And maybe you're realizing that. Maybe you're realizing, yeah, I never have been born again. I need to be born again. There was a man who had been a, a pastor for 40 years, had invited a missionary to speak. The missionary's text was, unless you are born again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And during his speech, he said, uh, his speech, his message um, the, the pastor was sitting on the, the platform and he said, you may be like my friend here, pastor for 40 years, but unless you've been born again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And at that moment, that pastor realized he had never been born again. He'd been in the ministry for 40 years. And so after the service, he met the missionary backstage and he confessed to him and he repented and put his faith and trust in Christ alone and was born again. So, how are you living your life? It's not by your standards. It's by God's standard. How are you living your life? If you're not a believer, we obviously would invite you to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation because He's the one you've sinned against. Your great problem is not that you... Uh, uh, have not uh, found fulfillment, you know, that you haven't found satisfaction in life. That's not your great problem. Your great problem is that you've sinned against a holy God. You've broken His law. You are by nature a sinner and a sinner by choice. You've offended the, the King of Heaven and your sentence uh, for this treason against God is death. Not only physical death, certainly that's part of the curse, but eternal separation from God in the place of eternal torment. And if you die in your sin, you will face, you will stand before God as your holy creator and your righteous judge. And he will condemn you. He will condemn you to hell because all sin will be paid for. But because God is also loving, I'm so thankful. Because he is also loving, merciful, gracious, and kind. Rather than let the entire human race perish, because there's none righteous, no, not one, no one who seeks after God. Everyone is turned aside, turned to their own way. God could have, he would have been perfectly just in allowing the entire human race to perish, but because he is loving, merciful, gracious, and kind, in the council of the eternity, in the council of the Trinity and eternity past, God devised a plan whereby man could have his sin forgiven and be reconciled to God. But for that to happen, somebody has to die. Because the wages of sin is death, and sin will be punished, either in this life or the life to come. And so someone had to die. 
Someone had to be sacrificed for sin. And so God provided his own sacrifice because there was no one that could be found on earth that would fit that bill. And so God provided his only son as the sacrifice. And the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great love, he humbled himself to a degree that we cannot begin to comprehend. And he stepped out of eternity in all of his glory. He stepped out of eternity into time. He, he humbled himself and became what he was not. He became a man, and he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And he humbled himself beyond that. He became a servant, born in the, in the humblest of places, lived an obscure life for 30 years. But he lived a perfect, sinless life. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live. And then at the end of his three-year ministry, being falsely accused, he was sentenced to die, went to the cross, and on the cross, God poured out his furious wrath on Jesus for the sin of all of those who would ever believe, though in fact Jesus had never committed a sin. He was wholly harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. God placed our sin on the perfectly holy, sinless Son of God on the cross, and then he poured out his furious wrath against sin upon his own Son. He was crushed for our iniquities. And because the wages of sin is death, Jesus died. He died, was buried, because he was really dead. He died, was buried, but rose again the third day, was here for approximately 40 days, and then ascended back to heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he ever lives to make intercession for those who belong to him. And so the price has been paid, the way has been opened for man to have his sin forgiven and to be reconciled with God, and that way is through Jesus Christ. And what that means is, if you're not a believer, then you must, you must accept what the Bible says about you, that you are, you are dead in your trespasses and sin, you are helpless and without hope to change yourself, you are deserving of nothing but God's eternal wrath. And you confess that in your sin before God, but you also recognize that God in Christ punished your sin upon that cross. So the price was paid in full. And then you call upon the name of the Lord. Ask him to save you. Like the tax collector, God be merciful to me a sinner. It's that simple. And when you cry out to God to save you, Two amazingly incredible things happen. Well, more than that, but first of all, you're justified. God takes your sin, places it on the count, on Jesus' account, and marks it paid in full, but that's only half the equation. The other half is he takes Christ's perfect sinless life and then puts that to your account. And so he sees all of those who belong to him as perfectly holy and perfectly righteous in Christ, though practically speaking, we're not. But that's our position, justified. 
completely righteous. And then God works in our life by the Holy Spirit throughout our lives through what we call progressive sanctification to make us more and more and more and more like Jesus until the day he takes us home and we see him face to face. That's what God in Christ has done for sinful man. So if you've never trusted Christ today, I'm calling upon you to humble yourself. Bow the knee before the Lord of glory. Acknowledge your sin. And put your faith and trust in Christ alone and his finished work upon the cross as your only hope of salvation. And ask God to save you, and he will. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see